0: Well, Acts 19 uh, gives us a picture into the city of Ephesus in Paul's day. If you were going to visit Ephesus, you were going to see the temple of Artemis, the Greek goddess. This was the main attraction. And that's saying something because The theater in Ephesus held 20,000 people. Ephesus was a port city where goods would travel from Antioch all the way over to uh, Ephesus and and all different cultures and, and diverse people met in that city. It's the fourth biggest city in the Roman Empire. And in some of the romantic novels, Ephesus is the place where two lovers would seek to end up and live happily ever after. This is not some small country village. Just to give you a little bit of background uh, to uh, this city and, and what the city was like, uh and a little bit about this Greek goddess named Artemis. So, she is the daughter, according to Greek mythology, of the sky god and king of gods, Zeus. And her mother is Leto, and the twin sister of Apollo. So, Artemis was a big thing in Greek mythology, a, a, a great goddess. In most accounts, the twins were products of an extramarital liaison for Zeus's wife was Hera, not Leto. It just makes me feel good that our God is not sinful, does does not have extramarital affairs like the Greek gods. Uh, for uh, Zeus's wife was Hera, and she forbade Leto from giving birth anywhere in the land. Only on the island of Delos uh, was she given refuge, uh, was refuge given to Leto, allowing her to give birth uh, to her children. According to uh, most traditions, Artemis was born first of the twins, and then she helped her mother give birth to Apollo. The uh, great uh, economy of Ephesus was dependent mainly upon this shrine, this temple to Artemis. In fact, twice a week they would do a parade from her temple through the whole town and back uh, into the temple. If you were in Ephesus for any amount of time, and you saw commotion in the city, it would be the parade onto this god. But Artemis was not the only deity worshipped in this city. There was up to 50 other gods and goddesses that were worshipped here. It was abnormal. They didn't have any concept of an exclusive god. Uh, You saw... Uh, at the beginning of uh, Acts 19, that the magic arts were also greatly pursued uh, in Ephesus. And so the culture is a secular, diverse, polytheistic, proud, and self-confident culture. And at this time, there was political instability. And so we ask ourselves, how could Paul's letter to the Ephesians apply to us today? Let me repeat what I just said. What does a church in the midst of a culture that is diverse, polytheistic, proud, self-confident, and politically unstable need to know? We can see ourselves here. Our gods are much more than 50 gods, for the god of our culture is self. The individual gets to define for themselves what truth is in our culture. We have as many gods as we have. People is what our culture tells us. We could say it's polytheistic. We could say it's proud, it's self-confident. We could say we live in politically unstable times. And so what does a church like this need? What kind of letter do they need? They need God's words through the mouth of the apostle Paul to the Ephesians. The church at Ephesus needed to see the real challenges in front of them and have real answers. They needed to see that they don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities and against cosmic powers over this present darkness against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. The church needed to realize that this is not man's church the church didn't come into existence by the will of man the message of the gospel that was given to the church did not come from man and their enemies are not the people in the city it is not the seculars but the battle is a spiritual battle which means to be the church To be faithful, to be victorious in Christ means we need to be led by the Spirit of God. We need to have the power of God. And it's the message we need to hear today. They needed to be reminded of their their salvation, how it was all by the grace of God of God's sovereign will and that God is worthy of all praise for their changed lives. They need to know that they didn't just decide to become part of a human group when they figured out some intellectual thing. Paul, from the very outset, lets them, reminds them of who they are in Christ. They need to be reminded of their resurrection in Christ, how they were once dead. They were by nature children of wrath. But because God acted on their behalf, they are now alive and at peace with God. Think of it. If you don't think that you began by the power of God, then what hope do you have if you're fighting against angels and demons? Jude tells us that even Michael the archangel which is a gazillion times more powerful than any mere man, didn't find that arrogance, didn't didn't have enough arrogance to pronounce blasphemous judgment on Satan when when they were fighting over Moses' body. But rather, he called upon the Lord to win that battle over Satan. And so Paul reminds them that they began in the faith by spiritual power, by God's work, which they would need to know because if they're just mere men, what hope could they have? They needed to be reminded that all the dividing walls of men are brought down as God has made one new man in Christ and that in Christ he requires unity among God's people. While there was many diverse people in Ephesus, and the church was surely filled with some Jews, some Gentiles, some used to practice magic arts, some used to work in the temple of Artemis, and some were Jews. How are are they going to get along? Well, because a new creation, a new man came into being in Christ. And so we see the theme of, of the unity of the church And then then they needed to be reminded how to live in light of their new life in all the different relationships uh, that they have. So after he tells us who we are and who this new society is called the church, then he needs to tell them how to live. He says, put off the old man and put on the new man that was created in Christ Jesus, he tells them how to live, and then he tells them how to function in all the different relationships they have now as new men, as husbands and wives and children and masters and slave uh, relationships. And so this letter is incredibly cosmic in one sense. We're shown what's going on in a spiritual realm and incredibly practical uh, for a Christian who is now new in Christ. Um, This letter, just to uh, cause you to lean in a little, it was John Calvin's favorite letter of all of Paul's letters. Armitage Robinson called it the crown of St. Paul's writings. Samuel Taylor Coleridge, said it was the divinest composition of man and adds his own dictum that it is the queen of all the epistles. John Stott writes, many readers have been brought to faith and stirred of good works by its message. One such was John McKay, the former president of Princeton Theological Seminary, He said, to this book I owe my life, he wrote. As a 14-year-old boy, I saw a new world. Everything was new. I had a new outlook, new experiences, new attitudes towards other people. I loved God. Jesus Christ became the center of everything. I had been quickened. I was really alive. By God's grace, he brought salvation to him. As a 14-year-old boy, as he read this book, as he described it, he was a new man. That's exactly what the book teaches. A new creation in Christ. John Stott says of this book, he says that it points us to the gospel and it shines light on our blind spots as an evangelical church. He said, one of our chief evangelical blind spots has been to overlook the central importance of the church. We tend to proclaim individual salvation with not moving on to the saved community. We tend to emphasize that Christ died for us to redeem us from all iniquity rather than to purify for himself a people of his own possession. We tend to think of ourselves more as Christians than as churchmen. And our message is more of good news of a new life than, a, than of a new society. Nobody can emerge, this is still John Stott, nobody can emerge from a careful reading of St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians with a privatized gospel for Ephesians is the gospel of the church it sets forth God's eternal purpose to create through Christ Jesus a new society which stands out in bright relief against the somber backdrop of the old world for God's new society is characterized by life in the place of death by unity and reconciliation in the place of division and alienation by the wholesome standards of God's righteousness in place of the corruption and wickedness, by love and peace in place of hatred and strife, by unremitting conflict with evil in the place of fat, flabby compromise with it. So all that to say it is by God's grace that we are allowed to approach God's word to us in Paul's letter to the Ephesian saints. The author is obviously Paul, as the first verse states. It is written, he, he wrote it in 62 AD when he was imprisoned in Rome. We know this because uh, chapter 3 verse 1, chapter 4 verse 1, chapter 6, verse 20. Uh, Paul speaks of his imprisonment there. Uh, Paul, our Scott was reading of his first visit uh, to Ephesus. He actually lived in Ephesus for three years in 52 through 55. So he's writing this letter 10 years from when he arrived there, and, and he stayed there for three years. In Acts 20, Verse 31, he said, Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease, day or night, to admonish everyone with tears. All right? This letter is unique in Paul's letters. Most uh, letters he writes is for a specific purpose because of a problem taking place in a church. But this letter is written in more general terms, there's no specific problem that he seems to be writing for. And it's not a small group of people in a small village somewhere, but he's writing to a city that has a quarter of a million people in it, and has up to maybe a million people in the surrounding area. So it's a letter written to the Ephesian churches, uh, this letter would be passed around in the region. All right? You can think of the letter, if we're going to do a flyover, and, th- and this will be by way of conclusion in the introduction here. Uh, we can think of it like this Paul speaks of our new life in Christ all the way through chapter 1 to chapter 2, verse 10. Then after that, he speaks of our new life in the community of God's people called the church. And then after that, he tells us how we ought to live in light of our new life and the new community uh, that we have in Christ. Don't live like your old life. Put off the old self and put on the new. It gets really practical And then he tells us how to function within our specific relationships. So that's kind of how the book flows. So let's look at verse 1 and pray that the Lord Jesus would, through his spirit, would guide us and bring much spiritual fruit through our efforts in this book. You can see in your notes the charge of this sermon is to treasure Christ in God's letter to the Ephesians and to us. Treasure Christ in God's letter. You'll see in the first point God's will in the sender. The charge of this sermon is not treasure Christ in Paul's letter ultimately but in God's letter. I think you'll see this in verse 1. Here's how it begins. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So if you just look at these two verses, I want you to just see something. Who wrote the letter? Paul. Go down past the first uh, comma, who is it to? The saints? What is the message? Grace and peace? Paul to the Saints or to the saints. The message is grace and peace. But what is excluded when we just look at it that way? God is excluded, right? What we see is Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. So yes, Paul is the sender, but he's not a sender as though he isn't commissioned by God according to God's purpose. He says, Paul, an apostle, an apostle played a foundational role in the establishment of the church the office of an apostle was an office that Christ spoke his words through through the holy spirit to establish and build up the church it's where we get our new testament from is, is through the apostles Harold Honer said, it can be said that an apostle was an official delegate of Jesus Christ commissioned for the specific task of proclaiming authoritatively the message in oral and written form and and establishing and building up of the churches. So when Paul speaks as an apostle, Christ speaks. He's an apostle of Christ. He's an ambassador of, of Christ. He speaks on behalf of Jesus Christ and he's carried along by the Holy Spirit and he's an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Now listen to me. Paul did not wake up one day and decide to become an apostle of Jesus Christ and in fact a person can't just decide to be an apostle. They would have to have uh, seen the risen Christ and be commissioned by the risen Christ and be given the authority of Christ. In fact, when Paul writes any of his letters, he starts in a similar way. In Romans 1.1, 1, 1, he says, Paul a servant of Jesus Christ. He says, a slave of Jesus Christ called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. God called him. He picked him out. In 1 Corinthians 1.1, Paul starts his letter. He says, uh, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. He wants to emphasize that he didn't just one day decide to take this position and decide to have a message for this church but this is Christ speaking to his church it's not by Paul's work but it's by the will of God he makes this especially clear in Galatians in Galatians 1.1 he says Paul an apostle not from men nor through man but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead just in case we missed that He didn't come from man. He didn't become an apostle by the will of man. And then in verse 15 of Galatians 1, he says this, But when he who had set me apart before I was born, who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his Son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, He says, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Paul didn't learn the gospel from the other apostles. He learned it from Jesus Christ himself as Jesus confronted him on the road to Damascus. And when Christ blinded him, Just real quickly, well, I'll just tell you. You can read about Paul's conversion in Acts 9. I'll just give you some highlights. In verse 1 of Acts 9, we read, but Saul, that was his former name, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way men or women he might bring them bound to jerusalem now he went on his way and he approached damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling on the ground he heard a voice saying to him saul saul why are you persecuting me and he said who are you lord and he said i am jesus whom you are persecuting but rise and enter this city and you'll be told what you are to do. So where's Paul's invitation? To Christ. He literally goes and gets the papers to go in to the synagogues so that if he finds any rotten Christian in there, he can grab them, bound, and arrest them. And on the way, Christ blinds him. Christ tells him what he is going to do. He commands him. Paul knew that his salvation was all of grace. Paul wasn't slowly being drawn to God by arguments and then finally gave in. But rather, Christ called him, set him apart before his birth to bring about this calling. That's what he wants you to see when he says, by the will of God. That's what he wants us to see. And then when Ananias, Christ uh, speaks to Ananias and says, tells him to go to Saul and and to lay hands on him. And and so in verse 17, he says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell off his eyes and he regained his sight. And he rose and was baptized. And Ananias was told by Christ, Go, he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings of the children of Israel, for I'll show him how much he must suffer for my sake. And Ananias is like, this is the one that's been killing us. You know that, right? Are you sure you want to pick him? So we see that the sender of this letter is an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Secondly, We see God's work in the recipients to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So, what Paul is saying is this letter, the recipients of this letter, is to the Christians. It's written to the Christians who are in Ephesus and are faithful. In the present tense, they're faithful now. How? They are in Christ Jesus. That's how. So, Paul's an apostle by the will of God, and the saints are faithful to Christ because they're found in Christ Jesus. Let me just, uh, sh- Let's just look ahead here for a moment to see what he means by this. Look at the end of verse 3. Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In Christ is going to be a theme throughout all of Paul's letter. He's speaking of our union with Christ. So we get every spiritual blessing in Christ. And then in four, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And look at towards the end of verse six. With which he's blessed us in the beloved. Beginning of verse seven, in him we have redemption. Uh, Look at the end of verse eight. Which he set forth in Christ. Uh, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him. And then the beginning of verse 11, in Him we've obtained an inheritance. And then the beginning of verse 13, in Him you also, when you heard the truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in Him. So how did you believe in Him? In Him you also, when you heard, believed. Listen, every Thing good in your life. Every blessing you have from God is in Him. You don't have one autonomous blessing from God. God owes you nothing. God owes me nothing. All of His promises find their their yes and amen in Christ Jesus. I'm gonna trip here if I don't time my shoe. Everything is in him. That's the, what Paul highlights to us in this second point. And this is consistent throughout the rest of uh, the scriptures. In Philippians 1.6, he begins his letter like this. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of christ jesus so how did their work begin god began it this is how uh, and then in verse 29 of philippians 1 it says for it has been granted to you that for the sake of christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake so believing in christ needs to be granted by god this is how peter starts his letter He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope. You had no hope until you had faith, and that wasn't started until the mercy of God became your benefit in your life. Acts 16, 14, we read of Lydia's conversion, uh, One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said of Paul. Acts 13, 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Who believed? As many as were appointed to eternal life. You see, the believer, as much as we want to take some credit, it is true that you must believe, and it is true that I must believe, and it is true that we have a decision to make. That's all true. You need to choose Christ yourself. You need to choose him. But what we're going to see in this letter is that you were dead, and I was dead, and what we needed was Ephesians 2, verse 4, when it says, but God made us alive. But God gave us life. You're not a robot, and I'm not a robot. God causing us just to do what he wants in a robotic way? We make choices, and we choose According to the nature that we have. And the nature that we have, according to Ephesians 1 through 3, is a nature that is dead. We're by nature children of wrath. And so we can choose whatever kinds of sins we want. But what we can't choose is to be a new creation. We need a creator for that. We need, for there to be a new creation, for there to be a new man, we need. God to bring about spiritual life where there was no spiritual life. And as God does that in a person's life, they of their own freedom choose Christ. Now what's the difference? The miracle that happened, the resurrection from death to life We are human beings. Here's how R.C. Sproul says it. If you struggle with the relationship between our will and God's will, is it God's choice or our choice? The answer is yes, we need to choose. And yes, God chooses. But the distinction is this He is the supreme being, and we are the human being. You see? We are human beings who make choices. He is the supreme being who is supreme above us, and that's how the relationship works. In 2 Timothy 2.25, Paul's teaching Timothy how to correct his opponents with gentleness. He says, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of truth. Well, that would be leading to faith, would it not? He may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of truth. See, we're not owed the right to believe. We're born sinful. We're rebels. We're haters of God. Read Paul's letters to the Thessalonians. God eventually gives them a delusion so that they don't believe what's true. He hasn't done wrong. He doesn't. We're not owed faith. But God in Christ brought about the saints that were in Ephesus, all right? Third, see God's gospel in the message. So Paul is the sender by the will of God. He's writing to saints who are in Christ Jesus. They're they're, they're united to him. And now the message is summed up in verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter, by the way, starts his letter in verse 2 of his first letter. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. So S. M. Baugh says the inspiration for pronouncing such a benediction on the audience is undoubtedly the great Aaronic uh, benediction, Aaron's benediction in Numbers uh, chapter six, verses twenty through two through twenty-seven. Uh, he writes, as such, it is not the expression of a wish or of a prayer, but the priestly conveyance of the blessing based on the Lord's promise. So this isn't praying that it might be. This is declaring what will be because of the promise of God in Christ. All right? So number six says this. You're going to find this familiar. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and all of his sons saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You should say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. So what if the Lord turns his face upon you in a loving manner so that his heart wells up with grace towards you? The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So there you have it, grace and peace. And then he says, so they shall put my name upon the people of Israel and I'll bless them. It reminds me, when I was reading Numbers, it reminds me of Psalm 4, which has always been so vivid in my mind, because here David is running from Absalom as Absalom's trying to kill him. This very night as he's sleeping in the wilderness, Absalom's trying to kill him. His own son is trying to kill him. In the end of this psalm, he says he goes to sleep in peace. It's like, what? Well, here's what he says in verse 6. There are many who will say who will show us some good. Here's what David says. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. In David's mind, he says, if the Lord takes his face and puts it upon me in a gracious manner, he says, you put more joy in my heart than when their grain and wine abound. Someone says, who will show us some good? Someone might say, well, when my crops are great and I'm able to party, that's when it's good. David says, if God's face is turned upon me, I have more joy than they have when their circumstances are good. And then he says, in peace. So after God's Faces upon him in peace, I'll both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. You see, if Paul gets to a big castle where there's a bunch of guards, he doesn't sleep at peace when Absalom's coming after him. He sleeps at peace in the wilderness if God is for him. He says, In God alone will I sleep in peace. What do you need to sleep in peace? Do you need your circumstances to work out the way you want them to work out in order to be at peace? What if you have a promise? What if it's not just a prayer, it's not just a wish, but it's a promise that the Lord looks upon you with grace and peace. Grace is the cause. Grace is the unmerited favor of God. It's the work of Christ giving you what you do not deserve forgiveness righteousness that's grace peace is the effect that comes from the cause that's what this whole that's what the gospel is you're dead in your trespasses and sins I'm dead in my trespasses and sins but what if God turns his face upon us What if he actually did it before the foundation of the world? Could you trust him then with your life? Could you trust him then, even if there was all these other gods and all these other enemies? What if God was for you before the world began? That's what we're going to see next week. This is securing to the believer We'll just see this theme. Ephesians 2.14, he himself is our peace. Ephesians 2.17, he came and preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. He describes the gospel as the gospel of peace in Ephesians 6.15. And here in closing, I want you to see this. Look at verse 2. Grace to you... And peace from God our Father. Now, if you were a Jew and you weren't converted, you would become immediately incensed and angry. How dare you not say Lord God there? Grace and peace from the Lord God. But what does he say? What does he say in verse 2? Grace and peace from God, our Father. How dare you claim to be children of God? Do you realize, brothers and sisters, that God, if you're in Christ, is our Father? And His face towards you is as a Father's face towards His children. Do you realize that? Do you realize that grace and peace is from God, our Father? L- listen to Psalm 103, verse 11, speaking of God's fatherly love. <laughs> I think the Jews mainly miss this in Jesus' day. He says, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. How great, how high are the heavens above the earth? That's how much his love is for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. I'm glad that my sins are that far away. As far as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers we are dust. For as a man, his days are like grass, he flourishes like the flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it's gone, and his, and his place is no more. That's depressing, isn't it? How fast does 10 years go by? How fast does 20 years go by? Your life is a mist. You and I aren't going to be here very long. We're like the grass. We're here for a moment and then it's gone. It's gone in a moment. Thank God that He tells us, as for man, the days are like grass. He flourishes like the flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it's gone and its place is no more. But, but, the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him, and His righteousness to children's children. So he starts off the letter with a bang. God is doing something. This is God's church. This is God's gospel. This is God's grace. This is God's peace. And if you're in Christ, God is your father. And he has compassion on you, and he knows your weakness. He didn't come to save the good ones. He came to save the sinners. You might be sitting here saying, he can't save me. You don't know what I did, Sam. He came to save sinners. This is a trustworthy statement. He knows what you're like. Will you humble yourself and receive the grace of Christ?